Well, we're looking this morning at the pilgrim's anchor. We saw last week the pilgrim and described what the pilgrim is according to the Bible. People are speaking about pilgrims these days of their arrival here uh, in 1620. We talked about there's only two kinds of people in the world. Either you're a prodigal, either you are under the covenant made with Adam, you're a covenant breaker and you're running away from God, or you are a pilgrim. You have been turned around, brought back to Christ, and you have a new life, and that new life is characterized as that of being a pilgrim. And we stopped with a point last week of the necessity of identifying ourselves as such. Do we see ourselves as we look in the mirror? I am a pilgrim. I am an alien. I am a sojourner through this world. Your faith informs you in that very way. So we're coming now to the pilgrim's anchor, the strength of being a pilgrim. We've described it. Now we're talking about some of the things that help us to live that identity out. Um, Most of us are pretty familiar with the first Thanksgiving that took place uh, by the pilgrims with the Indians so long ago. And it's a remarkable scene for many, many reasons. Uh, They had achieved their liberty after such a long, cold, dark journey of years and years, actually, of seeking religious freedom and and getting away from persecution, even in England. Um, The fact that they enjoyed such bounty Um, That following summer, after such a hard winter, there they are feasting with their new friends and enjoying uh, some of the the, the foods that were available to them. We know what they had for the first Thanksgiving dinner. But what really stands out is their faith and their thankfulness in that condition. They write in their compact, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, That's what stands out. That's what shines in these pilgrims. That they are able to give thanks to the Lord, even having suffered such terrific losses. You remember that one ship made its way across the Atlantic. Originally they had two. And somehow they got swindled by the captain at the last minute and had to pack everybody into one. They were blown off course. They were aiming not at frigid Massachusetts, but rather Virginia. And they wound up um, uh, at that rather dangerous place. During that trip, four died uh, as they were making their way. One of them died just before they landed at Plymouth Rock. And during that winter, 51 of the original 103 died. Nearly half, just about half. That included 14 heads of the 26 families. Over half of the fathers died. Um, 14, uh, I'm sorry, eight of the 12 single young men died. And uh, most of the women. Uh, They dug more graves than the huts that they built during that winter. And yet, the following summer, they are thankful. They are giving thanks in spite of what uh, John Newton would write years later through many dangers, toils, and snares. What made them grateful was the anchor that they had cast in the heavenlies, an anchor in Jesus Christ who is exalted above all, 
Um, that's their glory. That's what they were uh, anchored by, as do you. You have the exact same anchor in your life. And what I want us to do today, looking at 1 Peter, if you'd open your Bibles to that passage again, I want us actually to see seven anchors in this very rich passage as Peter is addressing the saints who are there in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are places in Asia Minor, more towards the north, as opposed to the south where Paul and um, Barnabas had been. And so... um, He gives them these anchors. He gives them these strengthening words. You're aliens. You're uh, sojourners in this world. The passage we read begins and ends on that very note. So what does he give him to lay hold of? What are these anchors? And so we're going to see seven of them. I I noticed that in the bulletin, Pastor Don's going to be preaching on four pillars tonight. Four pillars of assurance so I think I got them beat with seven anchors. Seven anchors beats four pillars, doesn't it? It's like, you know, which, which is higher, a full house or four of a kind? So come tonight and hear four pillars and add it to the seven anchors that we'll see here in our passage um, today. What is our anchor, brethren, in our Christian sojourn, our Christian pilgrimage. Well, the first anchor that we find here, and we're just going to be able to hit the high points, is that of election. Immediately out of the lips of Peter comes this idea that they are chosen. You're aliens scattered throughout. You're mistreated by the world. You're persecuted, but you are elect. You are predestined. God's foreknowledge has loved you from before the foundation of the world. Though you're scattered like leaves on on an old country road or tossed upon the angry waves of the Atlantic, there is a God who is your anchor, whose purpose towards you never, ever, ever changes. The immutable God has loved you with an everlasting love. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, beloved, knowing your election, Peter says the same thing to us here. This is the anchor that God has loved us and chosen us and has provided grace for us even before we sinned, before the foundation of the world. That's the picture here. The idea of foreknowing has almost the idea of foreloving that God has never, ever not loved you. God never began loving the Christian. He, his, his love and his being is on such a different plane. He is from everlasting to everlasting God. And that same action of loving us takes on the same quality of his infinite, his eternal character. He loved and will unchangeably love you with an everlasting love that is worthy of himself. I don't think the Christian thinks enough upon the love of God. We need to focus upon that. I think we kind of get fixated on other things, but the love of God must be um, our, our daily cheer, our daily strength. What an anchor this is. The first thing out of the Apostle Peter's lips, you're chosen, you're predestined, God has you. God has had you. God will have you. He holds you in the palm of his hand. What a contrast to being treated as strangers scattered about the earth, wilderness wanderers. 
And man, Christians have been mistreated throughout time. But this is the anchor. This is the strength that makes us always grateful, always thankful. And then this pours then, having been chosen by God, knowing that we are predestined, we find the second anchor is really in the covenant of grace in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Here's a Trinitarian faith. Here are the three persons of the Trinity, as it were, in their economic roles to fulfill the salvation that his purpose has um, established. All three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are pulling us in the same direction. The Father, as it were, keeping all of the glory in heaven and giving us the Son. The Son comes, and he becomes our Redeemer by shedding his own blood and giving us this gospel that we are commanded to believe. When it says to obey the gospel, it means hear the gospel, embrace the gospel by faith. If you don't believe in the gospel, you're sinning. You need to come to Christ, and we're commanded to do so. And then the Holy Spirit, who sanctifies us, who sanctifies us not in the limited way here on earth only, but he is going to perfect you so that you will never sin again and make, be made perfectly holy. So here is the Father in heaven purposing, giving, sending the Son, Jesus' gospel Come to him and be washed in the blood of the Lamb, which is highlighted later on in the passage. You have been bought with a price, such a precious price. And then the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the surety of this covenant excellence and the accomplishment. So here you have the Father who authors your very redemption. He writes your name. I am saving this one. And then it's the, the Son who accomplishes your salvation. I pay for all of their sins. I give them a title to heaven. I give unto them a righteousness not their own. I place them in my own body and bring them to glory. And then the, the uh, application of that salvation, this covenant redemption by the Holy Spirit doing the bidding of the, of the Godhead. And all of that then spells out the fact that our salvation is perfectly assured Come back tonight and listen to the four pillars. But this is the second anchor, the covenant of grace, which is steadfast and sure by this sovereign, electing, predestinating God. And this leads us then to our next point, being assured of everlasting life in Christ. In verses 3 through 5, uh, Peter steps into just a, a praise a, a, a blessing of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It goes on in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It goes on from there in the next breath in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. This is your rejoicing. This big three verses, verse 3, 4, and 5. 
You rejoice, you exalt in these big blessings that just one after the other after the other, they're stacked on top of each other. Peter wants us to to get the feel of the mountain-like quality of this everlasting life in which you have been anchored. So here, see several big things. See the big generosity of God the Father in giving us such a big gift in his Son. That's the point of Romans chapter 8, isn't it? That one section, that God did not spare anything for us, but rather gave us his Son, delivered him over for us, that we might have everlasting life. Here is big mercy. We want to say mega mercy. But it's not the word mega in the Greek. It's a different word that indicates muchness or variety of fullness and abundance of mercy. We can think of a cornucopia that's overflowing with these mercies, these tender kindnesses that God gives to us, treating us as a needy child and watching over us. All of this flows through the veins of the covenant of God caused by his mercy to be born again, something which the Lord never takes back. And then that leads to the next point, the big generous God, the big mercy, then the big change. You've been born again to a living hope, not to some kind of a dead end, not to some kind of a maybe, but rather you are powerfully united in your regeneration Planted into the living, resurrected Lord. See here at the end of, uh, of verse 3. You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is a sense in which you were raised from the dead as you believed upon the gospel. The day that you were born again. The day that the Lord regenerated, put a new heart in you, and brought you to himself. But that's connected with what has taken place 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose again triumphantly over death and the grave. You're united to him. It's because he's risen, you must be raised too. You are first raised spiritually and you will be raised physically with him. Paul says the exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, oh, that God would open your eyes to understand the power that has given you life, that has raised you from the tomb of your sins, is the same power involved in Christ himself being raised and ascending on high. That's the power that is in us. That is an anchor in our lives. This is no small change. God works in our hearts. And then see the big inheritance that comes with us. As children of God, we are heirs of God. We have an inheritance. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Even though here's the Christian being treated like like an alien, a stranger, having no abiding city here, yet he has all fixity through this inheritance that can never change, where the worldling thinks, These things are all mine and possessed by me, and yet they're like sand just dribbling through his his fingers. Um, This glorious inheritance of an unchangeable and reserved glory in heaven, ready to be revealed. I love that phrase. It's almost as though heaven, God himself, can't wait to reveal this, to bring this forth to his people. This is an inheritance way better than $2.4 billion. 
which will surely perish and will fade away, likely in a, in a, in a foolish manner. But think of it. Do you think about the fact that all of heaven is yours? That Jesus is preparing a place for you. Heaven is your home. That's what we are to think here from this passage. Your inheritance is yours already. You have a place there. Your name is written there. You are in a sense seated there in principle. And then lastly, the big power to bring all of this about. You are kept for that. God never gives heaven to anybody who doesn't at last come and receive that inheritance. That is a perfect match, you see. That's two of a kind. Um, And all of this is brought about by simple faith. You are kept by the power of God, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith. We are weak in ourselves, but by faith we overcome. We are mighty. This is the victory, even your faith. Because all of your strength and all of your keeping and all of your protection is not in yourself, but in Jesus. It's not in the church. It's in Jesus. So this leads to our next point then. We are anchored in the three chief virtues of faith, hope, and love. It speaks here in verse um, verse 6, And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on and talks about love in in verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is the fruit of being a new creature in Christ, of regeneration. You see in verse, at the end of verse, uh, in the middle of verse 3, you're born again to a living hope. You're born again to a living faith. You're born again to a new love. These great three virtues listed at the end of 1 Corinthians 13 are the fruit of having been born again. You are anchored in hope. Hope is woven all throughout this passage. Back in verse 3, born again to a living hope. Verse 4 speaks about the inheritance which will never fade. That's our hope. In verse 5a, we are um, protected Uh, for this salvation ready to be revealed. Notice how hope bookends a later section we're going to wind up in, in verses 13 through 21. He says in verse 13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. If heaven is the future of ours, we need to be leaning towards that. And then verse 21 who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in none other than God. Everybody has some faith in something. Everybody is hoping for something. The Christians is anchored in the Lord. And then anchored in the testing of your faith. In 6 and 7, it speaks about the, uh, the, the fiery trials that, that we will be put through. But the fire cannot really hurt the gold. It just refines the gold. It strengthens the purity of the, of the Christian. 
It makes us cling all the more to our Savior, whatever trial comes our way. Though tested by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus in that coming inheritance. And then love, anchored in your love. The fact that you are a new creature and you love God is proof of being born again, being born from above, as Nicodemus had a hard time grasping. You love him because he first loved you in verse 8. So you're anchored in the fruit of this great change which comes through this great God. And that brings us to number five, anchored in the prophetic scriptures. Uh, As uh, Peter speaks about the salvation of our souls, he links on in verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels desire to look into. So we're anchored in these scriptures. We're anchored as, think of in Peter's day, and they're hearing the gospel, and they're pointing back hundreds, even thousands of years of the, of the word of God that has been published from these prophets sent forth uh, to Israel in particular. These prophets in the Old Testament recognized that these words, these revelations, for the most part, were focused upon a coming day, not on their day. They saw new covenant days, Dawning, They saw such a fullness beyond themselves. And, and, the, and so the preached gospel, the Holy Spirit being sent, angelic things indeed were prophesied of by the Old Testament. That helps us looking back to see them looking at us. They, these things are planned. These things are purposed. And what is it that's purposed? Salvation by grace coming so profoundly yet simply Uh, through the coming Christ. The Christ predicted so amply in the Old Testament, the Christ who would, A, would suffer, and the Christ who would, B, bring in this glorious day. Notice sufferings and glory here at the end of uh, verse 11. Peter picks up on this later on in chapter 5 in verse 1 when he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. This is very similar to what Jesus told to the two on the road to Emmaus. Did you not know that the Christ had to suffer and then enter into his glory? We had two whole sermons just on those two words. He had to suffer. He had to enter into glory. And these prophets yearned, as it were, for our day, for this day, to look into such things. They were ministering to us the same. It's an amazing thing. How is it that the spirit of Christ could be in them before Christ comes? The spirit working in believers has always been the spirit of Jesus. It just flows, as it were, backwards in time from the finished work of Jesus The grace of God that they tasted in the Old Testament. It's the same grace that you and I have from the same spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ. 
So they yearn for that. They long to look into that. It goes on and says, even angels in heaven long to look into these things. Now, if they long to look into those things that they did not yet experience, and angels long to look into this redemption of which they are not themselves partakers, not needing salvation, how much more should you and I, who are the recipients? These are the gifts of God to us. It's sad to see Christians saying ho-hum to the preaching and the teaching and the opening of the Bible. We should be so hungry for the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments that all focus upon the redemption brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to be the upshot here. Anchored in the prophetic scriptures that highlight your salvation. Now, as it were, in the book of Acts, it says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. Now, we come to, we, that's, that's five anchors. We come now to number six and seven in verses 13 down through 21. This passage, this section deals of two different things. It talks about the new life. It talks about this separated uh, life, a separation from sin and the old ways, a holy life. Uh, as you sojourn here on earth, verse 17 is something of the, of the uh, transition. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay or during your sojourn on earth. So there's the new life. Anchored in this transformed life is 13 through 17. And then he goes on from there and speaks about all of this is in Christ. All of this is in the Christ who has been purposed from eternity to come and to be our Savior. The same Christ who is now the historical Christ who entered into time. The same who shed his precious blood to purchase a people uh, beyond number and who is raised from the dead and given all glory. What a mouthful. What a full description here of Christ this section ends with. So let's come to number six, anchored in the transformed life. And he begins with being um, obedient in our thinking. Our minds have been freed in order to be anchored in the truth. He says literally here, uh, gird up the loins of your mind. Fix your mind upon things above. Fix them upon the return of Christ in the second coming. Fix them upon the grace that is to be brought to you. What hope is yours? What a future is yours? Hope-filled minds rising above this futile earth is here in verse 13. And not only obedient in thought, but as obedient children of the Father. Verse 14. So here's your, your thought life and your, your intention, your outlook and, and your attitude and so forth. It ties together with your identity as knowing God as your Father. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You are obedient children of the Father. You are not of this world. You've been rescued from the God and Father of this world, if you will. And so you're no longer at home here or at home in your past ignorance and your lust for that life. There's no going back out of the matrix, as it were. And then you are to live as holy, set apart, 
with the Holy One who has called you to himself in verses 15 and 16. Be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We know those of us who've studied R.C. Sproul's series on holiness that the primary meaning of this word is to be set apart and then the secondary meaning is to be morally pure. And both of these things are brought together here in this passage. The cry of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, is heard in the people of God. The holy place in the Old Testament was a place of awe and of fear. But our anchor now, again, in these new covenant days in which these prophets have prophesied that these would come, you dwell now in the holiest of all. Hebrews says that you have cast your anchor upward into that holy place that Christ has provided for you. And so we are different. We are set apart. We are unique. And in the light of that identity, live out that uniqueness. Live out holy behavior. Don't be conformed to this present evil age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you not see how it dovetails with Romans 12, 1 and 2 here in this section? And then we've already highlighted, live as sojourners in the fear of the Lord, verse 17, producing good works. The Father impartially judges us. There is a standard in the kingdom of grace regarding our obedience, and we are to be faithful unto him. Compare this with chapter 2, verses 11 and following. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, you're being treated as an alien, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's your testimony. That's your aim. So this is the anchor of the transformed life. You're a new creature. You have felt things. You have things in your life that the unbeliever does not have. And live then holy before the Lord, holy unto the Lord, seeking to put on obedience, beginning in your thoughts, and, and, and percolating down into your affections, and into your attitudes, and into your speech, and into all of your life. And that leaves us with anchor number seven in the full Salvation of a whole Christ, 18 through 21. Knowing this, all of what we just said is as it were encapsulated here. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. God did not fork out a billion dollars for you. He gave something far, far, far more precious. He has bought you with the blood of the Lord Jesus He's rescued you from your futile way of life, which you picked up from your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. Uh, but you've been bought with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown, there's the preparation, before the foundation of the world, 
but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, there's the historical Christ, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. He died and suffered for you, but now is risen and gave him glory. He already has that glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So here's the lamb's precious blood. You walk as those who are under the cross. The atonement has paid for all of your sins. You've been made whole by this purchase, by the cross of Jesus. The person of Jesus is glorious, under whom you live and move and have your being. He is the one prepared, purposed for you. This is the glorious purpose of why God allows all of this sin and darkness and wickedness and Satan and these demons and, and all of the misery. And why, God, do you continue this world in this way? Because of the great glory that's going to come from this dark backdrop through his son. He's allowed us to dip so deeply into darkness to bring forth an even more magnificent light in the person of his son and all of those from the four corners of the world. You see how you are prized that God has given you such a gift. The passage in Isaiah said, God says, I give, I give up Egypt for you. I give up Cush. I give up the Sabaeans. I will wipe out a whole nation to save my people. That's the attitude. That's the jealousy that God has over his people. His eye is upon us, and we are the apple of his eye. And then God has come to earth in the person of the Son. God raised him from the dead and glorified him, verse 21. So anchored in election, anchored in the covenant of grace, anchored in eternal life, this inheritance that is yours, anchored in the three virtues, the fruit of regeneration, hope, faith, and love, anchored in the prophetic scriptures, anchored in the transformed life, a heavenly sanctified, holy life, which is going to bring you eventually to perfection and anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole Christ. This is what makes us give thanks at all times. This is what encourages us. This is what puts a song in our lips in the midst of the storm. And not just a little song, but a song of gusto. I really love one of the hymns that did not make the cut out of the original Trinity hymnal. Didn't make it to the middle one. Didn't make it back into the third one. But I love these lines. And it, I guess it is a little bit of a salty song. It's got a way about it. Though the angry surges roll on my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful, for I know, wildly though the winds may blow, I have an anchor safe and sure that can evermore endure. And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast, and the cable, though unseen, bears the heavy strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide. Troubles almost whelm the soul. Griefs like billows over me roll. Tempters seek to lure astray. Storms obscure the light of day. But in Christ 
I can be bold. I have an anchor that shall hold. You have an anchor, a sevenfold anchor. Praise God. Father, thank you for your mercies to us and for feeding us this day, reminding us of how steadfast and sure are the mercies of David, our David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you've provided this rock that can never be moved. And we pray, Lord, your blessings as we walk in that steadfast way. We show that steadfastness by our obedience as living as your children and not as children of this present age. We pray, Lord, that you would lift our hearts heavenward this day, that no matter what may come, our comforts come in the name of the Lord, who has made heaven and earth, who is able to supply all of the needs of his captive people as we wander through this wilderness. Help us, Lord, to fix uh, deep roots in the glory that is above and the wonders of the gospel of our Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen.